The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. We are in the midst of this brief Lent series of four messages of the I Am Statements of Jesus, uh, recorded in the Gospel of John. And we began a few weeks ago with Jesus declaring that he was the light of the world. And then last week, Pastor Lester uh, unpacked the declaration of Jesus when he said, I am the bread of life. And today, we want to look at Jesus' statement when he said, I am the good shepherd. And so if you uh, look at the text up on the projector or you could follow in your Bibles, I'm going to read from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. It is very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one uh, flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. I've been referencing this Understanding the Bible seminar that I've been teaching through currently. And and one of the things that I always drill down to the participants participants in the seminar is um, to understand the meaning of a Bible passage. You always have to look at the surrounding verses to know what the context is, to understand that teaching. And then when you study the Gospels particularly, you also have to ask an added question, which is, who is Jesus' audience in what he's teaching? Because that audience becomes very important to how we understand what Jesus is saying. So let's apply those principles to what we're talking about here today. Because at the start of chapter 10, as I just read, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. 
These are the religious leaders that became his enemies and opposed him every step of the way in his ministry. And in the previous chapter, chapter 9, Jesus had miraculously healed a man that was born blind, became a beggar at the temple all the time. And when the neighbors realize that a miracle has taken place and this guy that they've known all of his life who had been born blind can suddenly see they're dumbfounded and they bring him to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders to try to make sense of it and figure out what to do. And rather than celebrating the fact that this man who had been born blind had been healed, the Pharisees become angry at this guy. They become angry particularly that Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath and thereby did work on the Sabbath. And then on top of that, they begin to pressure this man and they pressure even his parents to basically turn on Jesus and to declare the miracle a hoax and to declare Jesus a liar. John chapter 9, verse 24 to 25, it says, A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And so this man and his parents refuse to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. And the Pharisees become so frustrated that they hurl insults at him. And they basically excommunicate him from the temple. Uh, from the synagogue. And it is in this context that Jesus says what he says in chapter 10. He begins to talk about these thieves and robbers who break into the sheep pen to steal, kill, and destroy. It's very likely that Jesus had the prophet Ezekiel's words in mind when he said this to the Pharisees, accusing them of being essentially false shepherds for the people of God. In Ezekiel 34, verse 1 to 6, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. One of the sad patterns that is consistently found in the pages of the Bible is that the leaders of God's people are often the source of the problem rather than the solution. How often the leaders were found to be abusing the sheep rather than helping them. And sad to say, I think it's very much true in our day as it was in the Bible times. It's been rather heartbreaking to see one leader after another in recent years, in the church, being exposed for their deep moral failures and abusing the very people that they were called to serve. It's, it's not with any relish that I show a slide like this 
Because a lot of these things happen right in our backyard in the Chicagoland area. There's Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, Bill Hybels. These are just a small sampling of many of the leaders who have fallen in recent years. And it's particularly distressing that it's, it's one thing to have a moment of indiscretion, a moment of weakness. But what's more frightening is that many of these leaders had demonstrated a consistent pattern of abuse, if not even predatory behavior. Christianity Today created a podcast titled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that just basically dissects the downfall of one of these ministries, one of these men, Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill, the megachurch that he planted in the Seattle area. And in the first episode of this podcast, the host, Mike Hosper, says this, this is hardly an isolated phenomenon. Why do we keep doing this? Why are we regularly platforming people whose charisma outpaces their character and who leave devastation in their wake? Something attracts us. We buy in, and then we watch the collapse like spectators at a demolition derby. Those words would hit far closer to home than Cosper could have ever imagined when it was recently discovered that Christianity Today would enter its own sex scandal. The very company producing this podcast, two of the leaders were discovered to have been guilty of sexual harassment of a number of the female employees in the company. I think to their credit, Christianity Today tackled this issue head on. And in their most recent episode of the podcast, they addressed the scandal that had come right to their very door. But even if the leader doesn't necessarily display abusive or predatory behavior, uh, he may still hurt the people that he's been in charge with by acting like a hired hand. Jesus says in verses 12 to 13, <coughs> the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. In other words, what Jesus is saying is it may look outwardly like this leader is in this ministry out of a genuine desire to serve others. But when trouble comes and the cost seems too high, he puts as a higher priority his own needs, his own desires, and he leaves the sheep to fend for themselves. Or he may simply be opportunistic. He sees a better chance to boost his own status and power. And so he abandons the flock for greener pastures. Now, listen. I want to be cautious in saying these things because I do believe that there are legitimate times when, for example, a pastor may feel called to a different ministry. Just because a leader moves on to something else doesn't necessarily equate to abandonment. But at the same time, I don't think we can dodge the truth of what Jesus is saying here. And the truth is that some leaders are driven more by ambition and selfish motives than out of genuine love for the people that they are called to serve. 
And this is the brokenness of the world that we all live in. People subjected to bad leaders who are supposed to care for them and protect them, but end up using them and abusing them or abandoning them when things get too hard or a better opportunity shows up. And what's, I think, also something that we have to acknowledge and not dodge as well is that some of the worst abuses of leadership and authority can take place in religious settings, can't it? And I think we need to do better as a church. We need to create a church in which the least of these are protected and that leadership is checked and that there is a humility in those who lead others to recognize we are all weak, we are all fallible, we are all, all human. And the thing is, God knows that that's how we are. He knows that we as humans are too weak to produce the kind of leader that we need. And so this is what God says in light of the disgrace of these false shepherds. He says, my sheep are scattered. And he says, I make a promise to you that I will be your shepherd. I will be the one that saves the day. And so if you keep reading in Ezekiel 34, it says, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so this theme becomes one of the crucial ones in the Old Testament. It is that God is the true shepherd of Israel. He alone is the one who will secure the safety and the flourishing of his people. That's why David declares in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the paths for his name's sake. When Moses, one of the great leaders of Israel, realized that his life was about to come to an end, he recognized that there was going to be a leadership vacuum and that the people of God needed a shepherd to lead them. And so he prays to God this prayer in Numbers 27, verse 15 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. You know, in the immediate sense, the answer came in the form of a man named Joshua who would lead the people after Moses. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prayer of Moses would be through Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting that name, name Jesus, which in the Greek is Jesus, that's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. 
for the Lord is salvation. And that's why David in the Psalm 23 declares, the Lord is my shepherd. And then here in John 10, Jesus makes this startling claim and he says, I am the good shepherd. And the Jews would have clearly understood what Jesus meant by this statement. He was claiming to be the fulfillment of God's promise in Ezekiel and throughout the whole Old Testament to be Israel's true shepherd. That he would be the one that fulfills God's promise to take care of his sheep. He was the shepherd in whom David trusted in Psalm 23. In essence, Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And that's why in verses 19 to 21 in John 10, we find this reaction. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And then a little bit later, in verses 31 to 33, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. It was very clear. They understood what Jesus was saying. By declaring, you are the good shepherd, you are saying, you are God. In claiming his identity as the divine shepherd of this Old Testament, his promise to the people is basically this. I will never be like these other leaders that have led you astray, who behave more like thieves and hired hands. What Jesus is saying to the people is, my commitment to you is total and unwavering. Unlike some of your human leaders who have disappointed you and failed you, what Jesus is saying is, I will never use my authority to take advantage of you. I will never have ulterior motives in my leadership of you and ever abuse you. When danger comes, Jesus is saying, I would never abandon you. I will never leave you for a better opportunity. As Hebrews 13, 5 says, quoting Jesus, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now, let's be honest here. Anyone that hears what I just said may raise an eyebrow and say, oh, really? Um, if you've ever gone through a hard time, or if you're going through a hard time right now, uh, you may wonder, how could that claim possibly be true? What about what's going on in Ukraine right now? Are there not people praying to Jesus in that war-torn country? I think we have to understand what Jesus is saying with a bit more nuance here. His promise to be our faithful shepherd doesn't mean that we will never go through any hardships or challenges in life. In fact, if you continue reading the 23rd Psalm, look at what it says in verse 4 to 5. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. 
for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I think we can have a very romanticized view of shepherding, you know. Uh, you probably have seen those paintings like of a shepherd sitting there in a grassy knoll with a harp <laughs> or a flute as the sheep, you know, very uh, quietly chew and eat the grass. That wasn't what shepherding was like in ancient times in Israel. It was actually a brutal career, a brutal job. It meant quite often leading a flock of sheep into what is better described as desert, an incredibly harsh environment. And in that desert, you're basically looking for pasture land and water where you can find enough sustenance for your flock to stay alive. And on top of that, you're worried about wild animals. And you're worried about thieves, bandits attacking you. That's why in those days, shepherds always carried weapons. And that was the life that David knew, even as a boy, when he was tending his father's sheep. As he testifies, I, I took on bears and lions in protecting my dad's sheep. He understood the brutality of that shepherding task. And so that's why David is saying, listen, that's inescapable to be in conditions like that. But what David understood, what this is probably what David had in mind, is that even in that darkest valley, I know that God is with me like I was with my sheep. They were never alone through that difficult time. I think what we're being told here is that, listen, this is unavoidable in life, these dark valleys. But what God does promise us is that he will always be with us during those moments in our life. I don't know if you've ever really thought about what's saying in verse 5 there. Um, but the imagery is actually kind of disturbing to me. Because on the one hand, you get this comforting picture of God basically preparing a feast for this person, for David. And so it's a very heartwarming, inviting picture. But then it's mixed with this other darker side, which is that the feast is set in the presence of his enemies. <laughs> and that's a really uncomfortable imagery, isn't it? It's like you're invited to this meal and you're going, wow, the, the spread looks amazing. And you're getting down, but you look up and all your enemies are staring <laughs> at you. What does that mean that God prepares a table in the presence of my enemies? I think David lived that life, didn't he? It seemed that throughout David's entire life, he was pursued by enemies. And yet, even in the midst of that danger, and sometimes even running for his life, what he experienced was God's care over him, over and over again, in that greatest moment of need when he thought that his life was over. I think David, after years of this wilderness living, could say something like that. God prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. The enemies are still there. The danger is very real. But even in the distress of this thing I'm going through, God has shown himself to be faithful 
over and over again to remind me that I am never alone through any of this. And I think that is the promise of God when he says, I will be your shepherd. You will still go through those darkest valleys. You will at moments be attacked in your life and there will be enemies at the door. But what Jesus says is, I, as your faithful shepherd, will never leave your side. I will be there with you through it all. In verse 9, Jesus refers to himself not only as a shepherd, but interestingly as a gate. And it's a little hard to understand that imagery because we don't think of a gate as a person. But the way it worked in those days was that when they would be out there in the wilderness, they would pen the animals into some kind of an enclosure with thorn bushes or rocks or something like that. And then what they would do is they would need an entry to get the animals into that pen. And then after all the animals were laid into the pen for the night, the shepherd would actually physically lay down and block that entryway to make sure that none of the sheep wandered outside the pen and also to make sure no animals like coyotes or other animals, lions, bears, would come in to attack. They would have to go through him first as the gate. But it's interesting that that purpose of the gate was kind of two-way. It not only protected the sheep in the pen from external danger, like these wild animals, but it says that he also becomes the way out for the animals. So that then, as the gate, he leads the animals to pasture, to better ground. And then what he connects that with at the end there, in verse 10, is he says that they may have life and have it to the full. This is also the work of the shepherd. Not only protecting you from what's out there, but also to actually lead you to the better life that God wants for you. Jesus' shepherding care over us is not only about protecting us from external dangers, but also leading us to the real nourishment that we need to live the full life that God intended for us, the abundant life, the eternal life that God promises us. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Our need for God's shepherding care over us is more than just protection for the stuff out there. What it also actually indicates is that we have an inability to take care of ourselves. The problem is also, in other words, internal. You know, Bible scholars point out that of all the different animals that were domesticated in the ancient Near East at that time, it doesn't seem accidental that of all of those domesticated animals, the one that God chose to identify with his people are sheep. Sheep. Um, I've shared with you in a past message some years back, uh, we lived in Africa for five years as missionaries. And we lived in a very rural part of Africa, what's sometimes known as the bush. And um, because we lived in such a rural area, when I would walk around the town or go to the hospital, um, I would walk by our neighbor's cows all the time. And after a while, um, I was struck by the eye contact I made with cows because there was this almost knowing and intelligent way that they would stare at you. And after living there for a number of years, I was absolutely convinced that these cows recognized me, you know? 
And so they would look at you in this way that really was unsettling. It was almost like I felt like I was making this connection with them. Like, you know, I was almost like, hey, bro, you know, like, hey, you know, like, okay, it's, it's, it's Steve walking by me right now. And it was really remarkable. But I also want to say this. I never felt that same connection with the sheep I passed. <laughs> never. Okay? It's literally like lights are on, nobody's home. Okay? Um, that's what it looks like to gaze into the soul of a sheep. Um, I want to show you a really short video that illustrates the intelligence of sheep. Or maybe the lack thereof. And in case you think that that was an isolated incident, I have one more video to show you. That's a sheep, okay? Um, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, writes this. Among the animal kingdom, sheep seem to have come out on the short end. From all accounts, they are of limited intelligence. When it comes to finding food, they are definitely uncreative. As creatures of habit, they will follow paths through desolate places, even though not far away is excellent forage. Sheep are also given to listless wandering. They are definitely at the lower end of the intelligence scale. There are even accounts of their walking into an open fire. Shepherds confirm that they are timid and stubborn. They can be frightened by the most ridiculous things, though at other times, nothing can move them. They are absolutely defenseless. There is no way a sheep can defend itself. Furthermore, of all the animals subject to husbandry, they take the most work. What an absolute recipe for disaster to have that as your personality type, right? Timid, scared, not the most intelligent, and stubborn, right? And God says, you know, you are sheep, right? You are sheep. Um, part of what Jesus wants to offer us as our shepherd is to lead us to the life that we cannot find on our own wisdom. Because what I think God is saying is, left to your own devices, you will always make the unwise choice. You will often do things like shooting yourself in the foot that are absolutely self-destructive to you. And so you need a shepherd, not only for the danger that is out there, but for the problems that are right here in your own heart that are destroying you. Let me just close with a simple story and then we'll wrap up here. One of my lifelong addictions has always been video games, and I realize that. I have destroyed my wrist with carpal tunnel 
playing video games to the way beyond the point of health. Uh, and my big temptation is these first-person shooter games. I actually, I've taken a hiatus from Call of Duty for months now because I began to feel it once again, getting a grip on my heart. And so I consigned myself to these silly color-matching games like Bejeweled, you know, because I just thought, okay, these are silly games. I just play a little here, play a little there. Uh, but sure enough, I got really sucked into this one. And eventually, this platform, they rolled out these global teams that span the entire planet. And I realized I was one of the top players. <laughs> so I tried to find a team that was worthy of my rank. But the problem is the top teams are impossible to get into. I tried for months. And I finally got into some. I thought my best shot was with these Korean teams and these Chinese teams. Because, you know, Asians, we're obsessive and we're, we're very disciplined and stuff. But even these teams were not a match for me. <laughs> I was always the top-ranked guy on the team. And no one was pulling their weight. Because as a team, you have to all do well to get the rewards, the badges, and all these other great honors. And then one day, I somehow, I don't know how, I'm not going to say it was God because it probably wasn't, but I got into one of the top teams. But it wasn't an American team. It was a Turkish team. And so I was, I don't know how they accepted me, but I was the one non-Turkish player in this entirely Turkish team. One week, we hit rank number two globally, okay? That's how... That's how committed this team was. And then I suddenly realized I can't even break into the top 20 of this team. You know? I'm like ranked number 28 out of 30 on this team. And I realized I'm not pulling my weight on this team. And I felt this tremendous pressure to do better on this game. And then on top of that, I don't speak Turkish. And there is this team chat going on. And everything is in Turkish. And I don't know what they're saying. But this is what I think they're saying. Who's this non-Turkish guy on the team? <laughs> and why are we letting him stay? And then I'm thinking, and he's not even that good. <laughs> and should we kick him out? <laughs> I literally am thinking these thoughts. And so I project onto that this pressure to play more of this game. And play more and more. And right now, I'm in the top ten. <laughs> But every single day, I feel like I'm fighting the battle of my life to stay on this team. Until one day, I just thought about it and go, this is a game. <laughs> this is a ridiculous game. And no one's forcing me to do this. And yet, somehow, I have taken what's supposed to be a simple leisure thing, and I've turned it into this. And it's now, I'm obsessing over it, and I'm consumed by it. And I said, this is absolutely ridiculous, right? <laughs> I think this is what God is saying when you say, he's telling us, you guys are all sheep. <laughs> you guys are sheep. I get you out of the ditch, and you run around and jump right back into the ditch, right? Is you, this is just human behavior. This is the kind of foolishness that we get ourselves into over and over again to that point where we go, this is not life. This dumb game is not life. 
It is meaningless to me. And yet I think that's what Jesus is saying is you need a shepherd. You need a shepherd because on your own, you are not going to find those green pastures and those still waters. But what Jesus is saying is I can lead you to that abundant life that you so desperately crave, but on your own will never find. I need a shepherd to help me. Let's pray. Thank you.